0: Snuff production.
1: He built a small town, uh, he sold millions of dollars worth of artworks, and an American president once tried to set him up with his daughter. Well, I'm talking about the new king, Charles, and the parts of his life that you might not know much about. Uh, he's probably best known for his tragic relationship with his former wife, Diana, but there is so much more to learn about the seven decades he's been waiting for the throne.
0: Charles is absolutely committed to showing the world that he will be a dutiful monarch. I think that creates a great deal of internal tension for him, uh, and I think that's going to be a struggle between his you know, his heart and his mind.
1: So do you know the real Charles? We're going to explore the person who is now behind the crown in our briefing, right after today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf, it is Wednesday the 14th of September.
2: The Queen's coffin has arrived in London after a five-hour journey by air from Scotland. It then travelled from the airport to Buckingham Palace by road with mourners lining the 23-kilometre route.
1: Yeah, it's been placed to rest in the Bow Room at Buckingham Palace where the royal family can grieve privately, but just for a moment because tomorrow it's taken to the Palace of Westminster where the Queen's body will lie in state in the Westminster Hall for four days and that's until the funeral on Monday. So during that time hundreds of thousands of members of the public will be able to file through and pay their respects.
2: And we also, Tom, we now know which Aussies will go to Mm. the Queen's funeral on Monday. So 10, well, they've they've been called ordinary Australians, but they're they're not that ordinary.
1: Ethic Australians.
2: (laughs) Because they're mostly Aussies of the Year winners in various categories, including Dylan Alcott, the PM, Anthony Albanese will go, of course, the Governor-General and the Acting High Commissioner to the UK. And also, interestingly, which is raising some eyebrows, are living Victoria Cross recipients. And that, of course, includes Ben Robert Smith. So he's the former soldier, of course, involved in the high-profile defamation case. And Tom, it might surprise you, but I do have some opinions on oh, yeah. <laughs> um, on the coverage of this. A, okay. it's absolutely, I think it's overkill um, right. and saturated wall-to-wall coverage. Mm. Like whether it's the ABC or The Conversation or any outlet, it's, it's hard to find any news elsewhere. And I can't help but notice the attacks on Meghan Markle. Again, it's wall-to-wall. I mean, you also have somebody that's there, Prince Andrew, who has all these awful, awful allegations. And mm. everybody is just... I just think they can't handle that, Maybe, you know, she's a woman who doesn't know her place, she's from Hollywood, she's a woman of colour. There are so many reasons why there's just way, way too much criticism, even from Aussie commentators. I think everyone needs to back the hell off.
1: Mm, okay, yeah. I mean, it, there is a huge amount of coverage. Um, I'm kind of right here for it. I find it all fairly interesting, although, you know, we are almost a week into the cycle of this mm. now, and... um the smaller updates are getting a little bit less interesting, mm. but this will be a huge day on Monday. As for Meghan Markle, yeah, some of, it, some of it's unfair, but she has been out trashing the royal family very recently in her podcast yeah. and then suddenly has to fly over. They were in the UK and didn't even visit the Queen, you know, which yeah. meant they didn't get a chance to say goodbye. So it's understandable there's a bit of interest, but, yeah, I think there are some biases which mean she gets a bit of an unfit. Yeah, whatever, sometimes.
2: like trash on Harry. It's his grandma, not hers. I mean, he didn't go see his own grandma. I don't know. I just think the vitriol, the bullying, it's it's awful. And I know previously he had said, you know, they're not going to stop until she dies. And I'm like, you know what? I actually see that happening. They're going to harass and harangue and bully this woman. And it's just disproportionate and unfair, especially because there are some pretty freaking unsavory characters in the royal family who I Mm. think are worthy of far more criticism.
1: And tributes are flowing in for the actor and Aboriginal elder Uncle Jack Charles following his death. The 79-year-old Bun Wurrung, Jaja Dja and Yorta Yorta Man died in Melbourne after suffering a stroke. He lived
3: a very hard life, but leaves a joyous legacy. He endured cruelty, he endured pain, but he uplifted our nation with his heart, with his genius, his creativity and his passion.
2: Prime Minister Anthony Albanese there. So Uncle Jack was taken from his Aboriginal mother when he was only four months old. And during his childhood, he endured just all sorts of awful things, physical, sexual abuse in state institutions, and he spent the rest of his life advocating for black rights.
1: He went on to do some amazing things, though, like appear in the film The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith in 1978, which was an absolute classic. And he also co-founded Australia's first Indigenous-led theatre group in Melbourne. Love you, brother. You've done well. And that's his sister, Christine Charles, on the ABC. And
2: we've known it was likely for a while, but the Bureau of Meteorology have now made it official. We're heading into a third La Nina, And it means 20% more rain than average for the eastern states this spring and early summer. And the event is set to peak in November.
1: So it can piss off by Christmas?
2: (laughs) I bloody well hope so.
1: (laughs) So yeah, it's the news no one wanted. Um, It heightens the risk of flooding in some parts of Australia which have already been saturated.
3: The community together needs to continue to listen and to
2: act when warnings are issued, understand their risk and be prepared for what's coming over the coming months. New South Wales, SES Deputy Commissioner Daniel Austin there. So triple La Niña's, and that to me sounds like a, still sounds like a swirly dance move. Um, they've only happened uh, three times since Modern Records began in 1900. And Australia was actually, Tom, one of the last mm. countries to declare the La Niña event. And so, yes, our grounds are wet, our rivers are quite high, mm. our creeks are full. It doesn't necessarily mean there will be floods, but it certainly doesn't rule it out for this summer. Mm.
1: And a man has died after being, wait for it, attacked by his pet kangaroo in Western Australia, near Albany, um, paramedics were forced to shoot the kangaroo because it was stopping them from helping the 77-year-old man, Peter Eads.
2: Yeah, and it's believed to be the first fatal kangaroo attack in Australia in 86 years. And it's unknown if the man actually had a wildlife permit. And so the kangaroo was about three years old and would have uh, recently fully matured and you know, could have weighed up to 90 kilos.
1: Yeah, it's a crazy story. I've thought about Fighting a kangaroo many times because (laughs) you're a strange man, Tom. (laughs) No, I'm just a kid who grew up in the bush. Like outside our kitchen window, they used to box on. We'd stand there doing the dishes, okay, and the kangaroos will be shaping up, paws up, like boxing. Yeah, amazing. And you, you can't help as a kid, but think, what if they come for me? Will I be able to stand up and take them on? And obviously, you're less worried about the paws and more worried about the feet because mm. when they come up and kick you, you're in serious trouble. But this bloke obviously loved his kangaroo mm-hmm. but he was 77 years old. I wonder if he was younger, he might have been able to hold his own.
2: Yeah, and I think that the, the issue with kangaroos is we're both upright animals and that's a challenge stance to a male kangaroo. So mm. I don't know what, what happened but the, the last known death by kangaroo in Australia was a man who was trying to protect his dogs and that, you know, didn't end very well.
1: And Aussie actor Murray Bartlett Incredible guy. Um, he's won an Emmy for the outstanding supporting actor for his performance in the White Lotus series. I just want to thank my
3: mum all the way home in Australia uh, for giving me the most wonderful foundation of unconditional love and inspiring me to believe that we can all do that for each other. So thank you, mum, and thank you for this. <laughs>
2: The HBO series picked up a total of five Emmys. Ted Lasso, I bloody love Ted Lasso, and Hacks were both big winners in the comedy categories while Succession scored big in the drama category.
1: Yeah, I watched The White Lotus. It is, is, there's so much tension in that series. You are mm-hmm. so uncomfortable the whole way through and um, Murray Bartlett was just excruciating and excellent to watch as an actor. Zendaya has become the first black woman to win an Emmy for an outstanding drama series twice and the youngest two-time winner of an Emmy in history. The 26-year-old won the award for her role in the hit series, Euphoria, where she plays Rue, a heavily depressed teenager struggling with drug addiction. All right, we'll catch you later, Antoinette. um, I'm about to go deep with Katrina on the things you might not know about Our New King. All right, now to our briefing topic on the things you didn't know about King Charles. Our exploration, Katrina Blaus, of the person under the crown.
3: Yeah, so our new king has had to live a really full life before taking on his biggest role. I mean, God, you've got to feel for him. He's had to wait until the age of 73. Most people are kicking back, uh, you know, mm. eating biscuits and... <laughs> watching netflix or whatever at that age but now he's taking on the biggest role of his life as king and he has been preparing for this his whole life
1: yeah um there are many things that i think we in australia don't know about those 73 years of charles's life we've got a bit of a snapshot in the crown we're going to back check a little bit of that and i guess you know look into some other things that we may not know about so much Uh, We're doing that with Dr Cindy McCreary. She's a historian with the University of Sydney and an expert in the history of the royal family.
3: How different is King Charles to other royals who've come before him? Look, Charles I think is a very distinct
0: individual and we've seen that already. Um, He's a more emotional monarch than certainly his mother and other monarchs. And I think what we're going to see is a much more personal style of monarchy, by which I mean I think we're going to see Charles interacting in a more individual way, a more personal uh, human way with members of the public. We already saw that with that, that lady giving Charles a kiss. I don't think anyone would have dared to do that with his predecessor. But I think, too, Charles is, as his first speech indicated, a monarch who has very strong feelings, and I think that we will see him express that in a way that we're not used to seeing a British monarch doing.
1: Yeah, that was actually the way he was portrayed in in the Crown, and I wanted to sort of, I guess, check the the perceptions that that fictional series gave of him versus reality. He he comes off as very emotionally sensitive; that um, he doesn't really fit with that cold, tougher, stoic side of his parents. Um, that he was forced out of his true passions of theatre, university life, his love for Camilla, and sort of pushed into the straitjacket of of royal life. Obviously, some of the scenes in that series are completely fictional, but overall, was that a fair portrayal of who he really is?
0: My sense, and not having met Charles, but my sense is that Yes, that he is a deeply emotional individual and that he has, as many other royal figures, and I would include his mother in this that they have felt torn between their duty and their own individual interests and, and passions. Uh, but I think Charles in particular has felt stretched. As you say, he's got a wide range of interests. You know, he's very interested in art, in music, in modern architecture. Uh, and I think that he has felt quite constrained. And the other thing that's of course, distinctive about Charles is unlike his mother or indeed any previous British monarch, he's had the longest apprenticeship ever. He's waited 70 years to take the throne. And in that time, he's, of course, had to be trained in that role. But that has, of course, precluded him from pursuing, as you say, all of his passions and interests. Charles is absolutely committed to showing the world that he will be a dutiful monarch. I think that creates a great deal of internal tension for him. uh, And I think that's going to be a struggle between his, you know, his heart and his mind.
3: A lot is made about the fact that uh, Charles studied in Australia. Sorry, in 1966, a 17-year-old then Prince Charles did two terms of schooling in Victoria at uh, Timbertop at Geelong Grammar. So he's got quite a fondness for Australia. And he was the first monarch, I believe, who wasn't homeschooled.
0: That's right. And in fact, his education for the time and for the royal family was actually quite experimental. Not only did he uh, go to Timbertop, as you say, but he also went to Gordonstoun, which was an experimental school in Scotland. I think Australia has played a really important role for British royals. It's a place that is, of course, so far away from home and our, in general, our culture, which is seen at least from by outsiders as more open, more egalitarian, more friendly. I think it's been a breath of fresh air for many royals, Alternatively, the Australian press has long had a reputation, uh, partly because of that openness, for uh, being more open in its criticism of royals than the press in Britain was for a very long time. Um, So the royals come to Australia with a great sense of excitement and freedom, but it's also a place where they are a little nervous about how the press might present their activities here.
1: So is it fair to say that King Charles has a has a particularly close connection to Australia, given that um, he went to Timber Top for six months in the Victorian Alpine country. And also, as we found out in the palace papers in the 70s, he tried to buy a 5,000 hectare farm near Cootamundra.
0: Yeah, I, look, I think it does. And in, it, that's interesting, that example of trying to buy the property near Cootamundra, because uh, his great uncle, Edward VIII, who was only King um, in in 1936 before he abdicated, he also had a very particular relationship with Canada. He did in fact buy a ranch in Canada uh, and he used to go there as a place that was a retreat from, um, you know, the pressures of, of royal life. And I think Charles did warm very early to Australia. He obviously encountered Australia as a young man. He had a considerable amount of time here. So I think Australia does have a very particular place in Charles's heart.
3: And a lot was made of Charles's uh, love life when he was younger, which I guess is another way <laughs> that he's broken the mould as a royal, because I can't imagine the same being spoken about when the Queen was a much younger woman. What, what can you tell us about his playboy status as a younger man and uh, particularly those first meetings with Camilla? Yeah, so
0: look, we we know that Charles was heavily influenced by his mentor, his great uncle, Lord Louis Mountbatten, who famously or infamously told Charles allegedly, look, go and sow your oats as a young man before you settle down, you know, with a wife. Indeed, it's actually after the death of Lord Mountbatten, who was assassinated by the IRA in Ireland in 1979, um, that left Charles completely grief-stricken. And it was Diana, Lady Spencer, uh, who allegedly met him, saw how grief-stricken he was and began to comfort him. And that apparently really accelerated their own relationship. And they married two years later in 1981. But well before that, Charles had had a series of encounters, including in Australia, there's, I think, famous scenes of of women coming out of, he comes out of the surf and women run up to him and embrace him, but of course his status as the heir to the British throne. I mean, that, that sort of aura of power uh, and royalty that obviously always surrounded him made him uh, a magnet for, for for some women. But his relationship with Camilla uh, began very early in the 1970s. Uh, they met but at a time that she was already um, entangled with uh, her first husband. Charles was devastated when they, uh, Camilla and her first husband, when they got engaged and indeed married. Um, That relationship, uh, the marriage soon broke down because of Andrew Parker Bowles's own infidelities, uh, and Camilla and Charles then embarked upon what we now know was a long-term relationship. But the problem, of course, for the Queen uh, and for others who knew about the relationship, was that this was uh, adulterous because Camilla Parker Bowles was still married to her husband, and this was, you know, seen as absolutely inappropriate for the heir of the throne. So Charles, uh, he marries, as I said, Diana. But as we know, I think about five years later, he's acknowledged that he and Camilla resumed their relationship, which of course created huge tension. That relationship with Camilla, of course, led um, in part to the breakdown of his his marriage with Diana Spencer. Uh, but eventually Charles and Camilla uh, reunite. And as we know, they marry in 2005. Um, and since that time, I'd say Camilla's really worked extremely hard to be recognized as a dutiful wife and a great support for Charles. And I think we've seen that, uh, in action, uh, in her presence next to Charles throughout most of the ceremonies he's been involved with since he was proclaimed king.
3: One of the things I didn't know was that he was set up with a president's daughter. Uh, there's some lovely photos, if you Google online, of um, Charles and Trisha Nixon uh, looking, you know, like quite the match made in heaven, but that didn't come off.
0: We have to remember that for Americans, there is a longstanding fascination with the royal family. There's long-standing interest in the royal family. Just the, the kind of the political consequences of a, a U.S. president's daughter, you know, potentially marrying the, the heir to the British throne would not have been seen in the Republic of the USA as something that was really something that could be encouraged. I'm not sure how long lasting or, or deep that relationship was, but I think it was a sort of a, a you know, an enjoyable flirtation for a, a short time.
1: Another thing that many people wouldn't know about King Charles is that he created his own town, Poundbury. Tell us about that place.
0: Absolutely. So, Charles has had a long standing commitment to architecture and he has been outspoken. In his criticism of what he sees as the blight on British cities of the sort of brutalist modern architecture of the 1970s, and he's you know he's famously dismissed some of the major developments in in London, and instead he's tried to create a different new vision of modern town living in, as you say, Tom, uh, his own town called Poundbury in Dorset. Now this is a small town; it's really on the, the outskirts of a much bigger town, Dorchester, uh, in Dorset but it's planned and it's it's designed to be an experimental community that will have a certain proportion of housing um dedicated to social housing or what we'd call public housing and it's designed to reverse what Charles sees as the blight that suburbanization has created for British cities. In other words, instead of having a town centre and then housing outside of it, it's a mix of shops and services with apartments and low-rise, um, quite dense living. And the idea is to bring people in together to the town centre and to encourage pedestrian traffic rather than cars. It is certainly proof that Charles is absolutely committed to issues that he cares about, and he takes them. Forward that you know he he's not just talking about new types of architecture he's building new towns
1: and just one other fact about King Charles or his his namesake Charles the first has a very interesting story he was a king who was beheaded for treason
0: I think it's so interesting um, that. Elizabeth and her husband Philip chose Charles as the name for their eldest son, who, of course, they knew would be Elizabeth's heir to the throne and eventually as he is now king. Because as you say, Tom, Charles I was a Stuart king who was widely hated uh, in both England and eventually Scotland because he was seen as a tyrant. He was trying to raise armies without the approval of parliament. He was trying to raise taxes and he was feared as trying to return England to uh, being a Catholic state. He caused such offence that he was eventually, uh, they went to war, Parliament went to war with the king and his forces. He was captured and in 1649 he was executed for treason. Uh His son, Charles II, eventually comes back to the throne with the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Uh, He's a very popular king, Charles II. Like Charles III, he loved music, he loved theatre, he loved arts. Uh, But he dies without a legal heir. He had lots of children, but none of them legitimate. And so the, the throne passes to his brother, James II, who will embroil Britain in a revolution. The throne will be vacated and the parliament will Offer the throne to a new combination: James's eldest Protestant daughter, Mary, and her Dutch husband, William. So a new dynasty will really come to the throne in the 18th century when the throne goes to the Hanoverians, and, and really the current royal family is descended from them. So the, the Stuarts and the Charles I and II have very mixed reputations, mm. and I think by choosing the name Charles III, what Elizabeth and Philip were doing was trying to reconcile Britons to their Stuart heritage and to sort of draw a line under that and say, look, we are, we are reconciled with our Stuart heritage. We are reconciled with Charles I and II. And, you know, there's no problem having a Charles again on the British throne.
1: So that was Dr. Sydney McCreary, historian at Sydney Uni. And that, that last little snapshot she gave Katrina about the history of Charles the First, that he was executed, and then the complex journey of the crown after that time, and also the fact that the The Windsor family name is just a name they chose to hide their German heritage. It just shows how little many of us know about who these people, the Windsors, really are that are our heads of state here in Australia.
3: Yeah, and I guess you've got to realise that there's been so much media reporting of the royals in in recent history, but that's a fairly new phenomenon. There's an incredible article in the New Yorker that I dived into, which you can Google, which goes into this and um, how the royal family isn't really all that apolitical. So if you want to learn more about that, I suggest you look that up. But yeah, it's certainly a lot of it has been buried and Mm. this kind of mystique, this magical mystique has been created around the royals.
1: Tomorrow on The Briefing, it's been six months of sanctions on Russia, but with Europe heading into winter with a very low energy supply and what we've seen with world oil prices, we're asking the question, have those sanctions backfired?
0: Listener.